Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the son of God. Thus far, the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us truth. Help us to understand it. Help us to comprehend your love to us through Jesus Christ and through the cross. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Bible is full of irony. The overarching story of Scripture is ironic because it constantly looks as though evildoers are winning and that God's plan is being thwarted. But the irony is that throughout Scripture and throughout the rest of history, God and his people, despite appearances, are are really winning the entire And God is in control. The Bible is full of stories in which evil men are laughing at the beginning, but then God is the only one laughing at the end. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Psalm 2, verse 4. The devil and his seed, his offspring, are always trying to defeat God and his people. But in the end, they they always play right in to God's perfect plan. The irony in Matthew 27 is that those who are mocking Jesus are actually speaking the truth about him in spite of themselves. The irony is that even those who destroyed God's son on the cross. Those who committed the most evil act in world history, were really pawns in God's mission to destroy evil. 
On Sunday, I read a quote to you on irony. Let me read part of it again. Here's what one theologian says about the nature of irony, especially in Scripture. Some irony is vicious. Some is hilariously funny. But we all know that irony has the potential, especially in narrative, for bringing a situation into sharp focus. Very often it is the irony in the narrative that enables hearers and readers to see what is really going on. Irony provides a dimension of depth and color that would otherwise be missing. On Sunday, we looked at Matthew 27, verses 27 to 40, and we saw two ironies. The first one is in verses 27 to 31. The irony is this. The man who is mocked as king is, in fact, the king. The man who is mocked as king actually is the king. They scornfully hailed Jesus as king, and they put a crown on him, and they gave him a a reed, a scepter, and a robe, and they thought the joke was on Jesus, but it was on them because this man that they're making fun of, this man they sarcastically hail as king, this man that they dressed up sarcastically as king, he really is the king. In fact, he is their king. And they are his subjects. And the second irony is in verses 32 to 40. The second irony is this. The man who appears to be utterly powerless turns out to be all powerful. The man who is utterly, who appears utterly powerless turns out to be all powerful. In fact, we can go further and say the man who appears utterly powerless turns out to be the only one with any real sovereignty, real power. Jesus seems to have nothing going for him. He's so weak physically in his human nature that he can't even bear his own cross. There's no hope for escape. We talked about that. The soldiers can't leave until he's dead. Meanwhile, the scoffers encourage Jesus sarcastically to save himself. If it's true that you came to save your people, then maybe you could start with yourself. If it's true that you can destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, then it should be easy for you to come down from the cross. The scoffers don't realize, though, that the only way Jesus can save his people, the only way he can rebuild the temple, is by staying on the cross and dying in their hands. So in reality, Jesus is doing exactly what his detractors are exhorting him to do, in one sense. He's saving his people. He's saving himself, ultimately. He's doing what he must do to raise up a new and living temple. In three days, God will vindicate Jesus. In three days, God will raise up a new temple. Resurrected Jesus is that new temple. And so the man who appears to be powerless is actually all powerful. The man who seems more feeble and more helpless than anyone else in this scene is actually in charge of the entire scene. He's running things. He's in control of the whole situation. It's going exactly as he ordained it. Jesus is doing what he wants. 
And those who are crucifying him are doing exactly what Jesus planned for them to do before the foundation of the world. Jesus truly is the creator and the king of heaven and earth, even during his crucifixion. Christ was reigning on his cross. The son of God was no less in charge during his death than he is right now at the right hand of God. The cross is where Jesus established his kingdom. It's where he had to go to complete his mission. The cross is where Jesus is lifted up. On the cross, Jesus delivers the definitive blow to his enemy. You see, the enemies of God are not defeating Jesus on the cross. They are enthroning him. And on Sunday, we stopped at verse 40 in Matthew 27. But the ironies continue in verses 41 and 42. And so the third irony is that the man who can't save himself really does save others. The man who can't save himself really does save others. Verse 41, likewise, the chief priests also mocking with the scribes and elders said he saved others himself. He cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. Do these chief priests and elders and scribes mean anything that they're saying? Of course not. They don't really believe that Jesus came to save others. They don't believe he's the king of Israel. These mockers love how witty they are. They're making Fun of Christ and his failed attempt at becoming Israel's savior. But once again, the mockers speak better than they know. In God's providence, their lips can't help but speak the truth. You see, it's true that Jesus really did come to save others. And it's true in one sense that he cannot save himself. You see, if Jesus is going to save others, he cannot. He must not save himself by coming down from the cross. Do you remember what the angel told Joseph in the first chapter of this gospel? He told Joseph and Mary that she would bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus came to rescue people from the penalty and the power and the presence of sin. Our sin. That was his mission. And to be faithful to that mission, he had to stay on the cross. He couldn't come down. If he had saved himself, you and I would not be saved. If he had come down from the cross, you and I would still be in our sin. In Matthew 27 Jesus is not on the cross because the Jews or the Romans put him up there. That's a secondary cause. The entire Roman army could not have kept Jesus on the cross if he had decided to come down. Remember what Jesus says in John 10. I lay my life down only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. 
Jesus hung on the cursed cross. He allowed himself to be damned by humanity and by God. And as an act of faithfulness to his mission, he stayed on the cross. The mission that his father gave him. His mission was to free us from that curse, from that damnation, the curse of sin and death. So in a sense, it is true that the Savior can't save himself. The mockers are right about that in one sense. Jesus could have saved himself if he had wanted to. It was physically possible, but spiritually it was impossible. Jesus could not save himself if he wanted to be faithful to his father's mission. You see, it's no mistake that the king ended up on a cross. The king came to shed his blood for many. He came to save his people from their sin. He came to establish a covenant in his blood. As Peter puts it in 1 Peter 3, Jesus came to die the righteous for the unrighteous so that you and I could become righteous in him. In Jesus' own words, he came to give his life as a ransom for many. That means he, he came to give his life as a payment for many. He came to purchase you, to redeem you, to pay for your sins. And he paid with his precious blood, the blood that he shed for you on the cross. If you're like me, when you're, when you're rereading a, a good versus evil story for the second or third time, there's a point, there's a, there's a part of you that hopes the good guys will overcome evil ahead of time. You know the story won't be resolved until the end, but there's still a part of you that wants resolution and justice now. You can't wait till the end when good triumphs over evil. If you had it your way, the story would be shorter. The good guys would suffer less and the, the bad guys would be defeated sooner. When I read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, I know what's going to happen. And I know it has a happy ending. I take comfort in that. But there's still a part of me that doesn't want Aslan to go to the stone table. It pains me to read it. Can't help but hope against hope that victory will come sooner this time. I know it's impossible. But it doesn't stop me from wishing that Aslan could avoid the humiliation of being tied down and muzzled and shaved. Wish there was a way Aslan could avoid that suffering and death. Similar thing happens when I read the accounts of the crucifixion. Even though I know how the story ends, and I know theologically why it must happen this way, still, part of me wants Jesus to save himself and to shut these mockers up. Jesus himself wondered... Uh, wondered out loud to the Father whether there was another way for him to defeat evil and save his people. Earlier in Matthew 26, Jesus said to God, My Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. 
It's not abnormal for us to long for a different way that brings less suffering on the innocent and the righteous and swifter judgment on the wicked. But the answer that the father gave to Jesus is that he must drink the cup. There's no other way. Can't shorten the story. And we must remember that if Jesus had not drunk the cup of the cross, then the mockers would have gotten the last laugh. If Jesus had saved himself, he could not have saved others. The only way he could save others was by not saving himself in that moment. So the mockers spoke the truth, even though they didn't know the truth. They spoke the truth even while they were mocking the truth. So it is true that the man who can't save himself does indeed save others. Jesus came to do his father's will. And he was he was not going to be sidetracked from that mission. You see, it wasn't the nails that that held Jesus to the cross. It, it wasn't mankind's hatred that put him up there on the cross. No, it was his commitment to his father's will that drove him to the cross. His commitment to his father and his commitment to you and to me kept him fastened to the cross. And so the statement of the mockers is true. Not in the sense they intended it, but it's true nonetheless. He saved others himself he cannot save. Now we come to the fourth and final irony, which is found in verses 43 to 51. And the fourth irony is this. The man who cries out in desperation is actually the man who trusts God perfectly. Verse 43. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will save him. For he said, I am the son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Now, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and offered it. To him to drink. The rest said, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked and the rocks were split. In verse 43, the religious leaders sarcastically say he trusted in God. He put his faith in God. Let God deliver him now if he will have him. After all, his claim was that he was the Messiah, he was the Son of God. And when they say he trusted God, what they really mean is that he did not trust God. He did not actually put his faith in God. After all, surely God does not abandon his faithful one, his son, the Messiah, to a Roman cross. So obviously Jesus is not one of God's faithful ones. Who puts his trust in the Lord. Even both of the thieves joined in with the mockers. We know that one of these thieves. 
eventually repented and believed in Jesus before he died. But initially, both of them joined everyone else in mocking Christ. So even those you might expect to sympathize with Jesus are reviling him just like everyone else. How could Jesus really trust God? How, how could he be God's son? How could he be the Christ? And Matthew seems to give us reasons for joining the mockers and skeptics. How could the Messiah be so desperate in this prayer? How, how could a man of faith be so full of what seems like despair? Why would the Son of God ever cry out to the Father, Why have you forsaken me? Is this what men of faith say? Is this how they pray? Where is, where is Christ's confidence that God knows best? Where's his quiet repose? Did Jesus temporarily lose his faith? Some have suggested that he did. That he, that he had a moment, that he had a lapse here. That he cracked under pressure. And this is supposed to comfort us when we break under pressure. That is the wrong way to read this passage, this story. Jesus trusted God perfectly on the cross. This becomes clear when we when we remember that Jesus cry here is straight from the Bible. Jesus is quoting the first verse of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if you read the rest of Psalm 22, we read much of it. In our responsive reading, you see that it's full of rich expressions of confidence and faith in Yahweh. By the end of this psalm, David is full of praise. You see, David's prayer in Psalm 22 is full of trust in God, including the first verse. Where he asks God why he's forsaken him. It is possible to ask God this kind of a question without faith? Sure. It's possible to ask God this kind of question without believing there is a perfectly good and wise answer that God knows even if you don't. But it's also possible to ask God this question with faith. David and Jesus pray it with faith. They are not doubting God's wisdom and goodness. Jesus wasn't asking why because he had no idea why his father was putting him through this. He knew the ultimate reason for his suffering. He hadn't forgotten his mission. But his cry to the father on the cross is real. It's a cry of faith. It's a biblical prayer written for this moment. A biblical prayer from a son who ultimately trusts his father. But is taking his father up on words supplied for a time such as this. You see, when Jesus was squeezed, out came scripture. And was there ever a more appropriate scripture for Jesus to pray on the cross? His father was treating him as sin. He was pouring out his wrath on Jesus. He was cursing Jesus and forsaking him on the cross. It seems quite appropriate then for Jesus to pray. Psalm 22, 1. God inspired this prayer for this occasion. 
at Jesus' darkest hour, here's what we need to see at his darkest hour, at his most desperate, most painful moment. What comes out of his mouth? It's Bible, Bible language, the Psalms, God breathed prayer. He prays scripture. This is what people who are full of faith do. Far from being evidence of Christ's lack of faith, this is evidence of his perfect trust in God and in his word and in his mission. The man who cries out to God in desperation is, in fact, the man who trusts in God perfectly. Jesus Jesus showed himself to be a man of faith throughout this whole story. When he was mocked as king, he knew he really was the king. And he also trusted his father to exalt him at his right hand at the right time. When all the evidence pointed to the fact that Jesus was utterly helpless and powerless. And when he was mocked for his weakness, Jesus knew that he could trust his father to turn his weakness into power for the kingdom of God. Jesus knew What Paul later learned, when I am weak, then I am strong. When they ridiculed him about his inability to save himself and to save others, Jesus knew that he could trust his father who had already told Jesus that in order to save his people, he must not save himself. This is what trusting God looks like. This is what living out the gospel looks like this is what denying yourself and taking up your cross looks like this is what it looks like to lose your life so that you might find it this is what it looks like when you know that god's grace is sufficient for you this is what it looks like to know god's strength is made perfect in weakness jesus you see has not told you to do anything that he has not done himself Earlier, I talked about how we sometimes wish that the good guys didn't have to wait so long to suffer before emerging victorious. I mentioned how I think that when I read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. But sometimes I do it with my own life, my own story as well. Maybe you do too. It's easy for us to get caught up in wishing that God would bring resolution and resurrection to our broken situation before it's time. God, why have you decided to put me through this? What are you waiting on? You want strength where God has determined it's still time for weakness. You want resolution now, not later. You want God's judgment on evil today, not tomorrow. You want God to deliver you from your circumstances, to fix your marriage, to remove the thorn from your side, to save you from your burdens and your pain. But God is calling you to endure, to wait on him as Jesus did, and to learn faith and humility and obedience through the things that you suffer. It's okay to want resolution and resurrection. It's okay to ask for it, to pray for it, to long for it. But with Jesus, you must be willing to say, ultimately, not as I will, but as you will. 
The essence, the essence of faith is waiting on God's perfect timing, just as Jesus did. If you endure to the end with patient faith, God will raise you from the dead, just as he raised Jesus from the dead. And then you will know why God put you through the fire. You will know why God made you wait. You will know why God did not answer certain prayers the way you wanted them answered. You will know why God did not order your life the way that you would have if you were sovereign. God did not end Jesus' suffering prematurely. And he won't end yours prematurely either. But like Jesus, you can always cry out to God, to the Father, with the confidence that he hears you. And with the confidence that he will use your adversities for good. He will transform your suffering into a weight of glory in the world to come. There's always resurrection on the other side of faithful death. So let us take up our cross and follow Jesus. And let's pray and ask him to help us to do that. Father, we thank you again for the gift of your son. We thank you, Jesus, for being willing to take up your cross to save us. We thank you that you did not save yourself in that moment and that you took the scorn and the shame and the curse that belonged to us upon yourself. Help us to follow you in this way, to take up our crosses, to deny ourselves. Help us to do this by the spirit you've given us. And in Jesus' name, amen.